0: Welcome to The 43%, I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. But in this show, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas.
1: I definitely found that I was having to turn down a lot of work. And then, of course, if you're freelance and you start turning things down, you you basically get like two no's before people stop asking you.
0: That was today's guest, Amy Westervelt. Amy is an award-winning writer and editor covering the environment, health, tech, and business. She has contributed regularly to The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, along with many other publications. Her magazine work includes Popular Science, Elle, Business Week, and Travel and Leisure. In 2007, she won a Folio Eddie for her feature on the potential of algae as a feedstock for biofuel. In 2015, she was awarded a Rachel Carson Award for women greening journalism. And in 2017, she won an Edward R. Murrow Award for a series on the impacts of the Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada. In November, she launched Drilled, the first ever true crime style podcast to examine the creation of climate denial. Her book, Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It was also just released by Seal Press. In our conversation, Amy shared her professional path to success, the potential pitfalls of the gig economy, and her own experiences as a mother with young children. So, hey, Amy, thanks for making the time to connect today. As you know, I'm super excited about being able to get more stories out there, especially to younger women, about the different and varied journeys and experiences that women have as moms and as uh, people who care about their careers. And so I was wondering if we could get started by, you know, if you don't mind just taking a few minutes to introduce yourself and share a little bit about what you're working on right now. Sure. My name is Amy Westervelt,
1: and I was a journalist for a long time, still am, and then at a certain point started getting into radio reporting, and that led me to start a podcast company last year called Critical Frequency. Um, And for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to also write a book right before then. (laughs) So... (laughs) I um I kind of you know I I have been a working mom for almost seven years now, and when my kids were first born, I was a, I was freelancing entirely, and had been told by lots of people how great that was for balancing family life and work, and um and then you know in my experience it really wasn't and. So I um, started writing a little bit about why that was, and that turned into a book. And then at the same time, I I sort of found my solution to that problem, which was actually starting a company. Um, So, you know, not unlike yourself, (laughs) that was, I guess, it sounds like, it sounds like a, um, you know, like that would be, the last thing you'd want to do with kids because it takes a lot of time and effort and energy. But for me, it was actually a lot easier to balance parenthood and career um, starting a company than it was working as a freelancer or um, or working in an office. So I think
0: a lot of people, myself included, can easily imagine some of the challenges with like a traditional nine to five type job. But could you share a little bit more about what some of the challenges were like of being a freelancer, especially in the world that you operate yeah. in? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um yeah, so like I said, I mean, everyone really like every single person I knew was like, "Oh, it's so great that you're freelance cuz like that'll be so easy to balance with kids." And you know, the reality was that, you know, having Having kids at home when you're trying to do interviews is not great. Surprise, surprise. And I um, can't imagine why. (laughs) You know, I know, I know. And in my realm, like journalism is often quite unstable, not just in terms of, you know, getting work and getting paid on time and all of those things, but also just, you know, you get a lot of last minute assignments. And if you can't take those assignments, which it's very hard to do as a working mom because you do have to have, you know, even if you're working at home, you still have to have a pretty rigid schedule so you can make, you know, childcare and work and everything, um, work then you can't drop everything and like drive 2 hours away and then, you know, stay until the story's done, which is oftentimes kind of the requirement of of taking on an assignment. So I I definitely found that I was having to turn down a lot of work, and then of course, if you're freelance and you start turning things down, you you basically get like two nos before people stop asking you. So that was, you know, that started happening for sure. And um, and then I also found that uh, I, in order to kind of put aside the time for um, doing all of the reporting needed for stories. I was kind of burning up all my childcare hours on that and then having to like do the creative part kind of like at night or like really early in the morning and squeezing it around kids who of course like never sleep the hours that they usually sleep when you need them to. <laughs> so <laughs> You know, so I'd be like getting up at three thirty in the morning thinking like I'll I'll write this story then. And first of all, like um inevitably like one of the kids would have a bad dream at four AM, you know. But then also it's just it's kinda it's hard to force yourself to be creative or come up with good ideas or um or a good approach to structure and things like that that kind of require a little bit of just being able to focus. So for me, yeah, I just found well, that. Besides that being of, up
0: at three, you know, besides having kids who interrupt, yeah. I mean, working in general at three in the morning is not <laughs> the easiest thing. Not in the ideal.
1: World. Not a, yeah. yeah. There's a reason that's not like, you know, advice that people give. <laughs> Get up <laughs> at three. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's yeah. So, um, so yeah. For me, I kind of found that. Being able to have the sort of control over what I was working on that I could have when I was you know, working on my own show or working on someone else's show made, it just made it possible to actually schedule time to focus on creative stuff or schedule reporting trips where I would just go for a week and get everything done instead of, of having to kind of like squeeze it in where I could and, and things like that. So yeah. And then also like on the financial side too, it's just, it's, um, I think, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like Uh, freelance and gig economy stuff in general has often been suggested as this like pathway to work-life balance for moms. And the reality is it's a pathway to unstable income, um, unstable employment. Uh, Like, you know, for me anyway, I was just, you know, for me it was, it was, kind of like you spend as many hours working, but you have less money and less stability. So I don't know that that's really the right, perfect fit. Right. Yeah,
0: there's the, and, and having that instability causes insecurity, which is the last thing you want when you're trying to be present for your family and all the other things yeah. that go with it. Yeah. So, but you, you took it a mm-hmm. step farther than just starting a company, which is of course a big deal in and of itself, but you also were so either bothered or curious about the state of affairs that you wrote a book. Could you share a little bit more about the book?
1: Yes. So I had this moment when my second son was a newborn and I was, um, I was supporting all of us. So a family of four as a freelance writer, I don't recommend it. Um, (laughs) and, (laughs) and so I, um, But I had this, this moment, like a couple weeks after I had, um, had my son and I had, because of the situation that we were in, I had taken off literally an afternoon to have a baby. Yeah. But this is the thing. So I was very, I was feeling very proud of myself. I was going to the post office, getting, you know, picking up checks that I had for work that I had done, you know, when most people would be on maternity leave and feeling kind of like, you know, um, I don't know, like a sense of accomplishment for having done that. And that was, that feeling just made me really kind of pause for a minute and be like, whoa, like what am I thinking? And why are, um, you know, why, why should that be considered somehow better or um, more valuable than like taking care of a kid, you know? Um, and yeah, I mean, so some people take I, lot
0: more time after like they have their wisdom teeth out, <laughs> you know,
1: yes, just rest. Yes, that. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah.
0: The 43% is brought to you in part by third love. There's literally nothing worse than being in a meeting and feeling like you have to reach over to adjust your bra strap. That's why I'm super psyched to share my experience with Third Love. I recently went online and took their quiz to find my perfect bra size. I think the entire process took me less than one minute and it was surprisingly fun. In just a few days, I had my perfectly sized bra delivered to my door along with an alternate option. The straps stay just where they're supposed to now, which is on my shoulders. I cannot believe I waited this long to have a bra that actually fits right. This is hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned, and there's no annoying tag label that itches either. Their lightweight, super thin memory foam cups actually mold to your shape, which is proprietary to 3rd love. How cool is that? Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Simply go to thirdlove.com forward slash percent now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. What are you waiting for? That's T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com forward slash P-E-R-C-E-N-T. You got to check it out. When it comes to marketing your business, I know it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time and connecting with them when your message will resonate the most. So if you want to target your customers where they are engaging every day like me, and when they're ready to make a decision, LinkedIn can help you. When you advertise on LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network, you have the ability to build long-term relationships with your customers. Those relationships often translate into high-quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. the first step talking to the right audience with a community of over 575 million professionals on LinkedIn including me you have access to a diverse group of people searching for the things they need to grow professionally LinkedIn has the marketing tools to help you target your audience with precision down to their job title company name and industry because better targeting equals a message your customers care about which in turn leads to more trust built with your customers in fact four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are the decision makers at their company. So you're building relationships that really matter. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash the 43%. That's linkedin.com slash T-H-E 43 three P-E-R-C-E-N-T for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Yeah, so I, um, I kind of like had this this night during that week where I was up late and I was working, and the baby was like, you know, nursing through the night, and I I wrote this essay that was called um, "Having It All Kind of Sucks," and um, I didn't I kind of like didn't really expect anyone else to read it, but then it went uh, it, like went crazy viral, and it got picked up by all these places, and I started getting all these letters from women saying, you know, um. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I, um, just like never really like everyone always tells, everyone always tells me that, you know, it should be easy to balance work and motherhood or that it's super possible or that you just have to like work really hard at it or whatever. And so, you know, kind of having an honest conversation about it it was helpful and whatnot. And so then I kind of started thinking, well, how did we, you know, how did we get to this place where, you know, um, this area is so fraught and it is so hard for moms and there is still such a lack of discussion around it. Um, So I started looking into kind of the history of how ideas about motherhood came about in the US. And I, you know, I kind of, I told my agent that, you know, I didn't really want to add to the growing mountain of, of what I called like American um, miserable mom literature. (laughs) (laughs) but but I wanted to understand why there was so much of it you know um so yeah that's what I started to do I started to look at like where the sort of the roots of where we're at today because you go Um, could
0: you share a little bit more about how far back you go in your research because it's not it is a great book and it's not just about present-day circumstances you really take the eye of a journalist to the history of motherhood in our country Mm -hmm. which is pretty it's and yeah, it's fascinating to read. And as I'm, I was reading it, I'm thinking, how do we not talk about this more <laughs> as something as part yeah, of? Yeah, I was history. really
1: surprised. Yes, I was really, really surprised at how many things I hadn't known before, and how much I was like, oh well, duh, that makes sense. That like we're, you know, that we have all these these ideas that we have now. Um, so yeah, I looked at uh as far back as as um you know the like the early um puritans arriving in america but even like a little bit farther back to you know what was happening in england and western europe right before people immigrated to america and like how ideas about motherhood and childhood were changing um, it's so interesting too cuz you look if you take that kind of like 200 300 year look at it it's really clear that every time um, every time you would see sort of a step forward in women's rights or women just kind of you know pushing to have um a little bit more of an individual identity or uh, a voice in community affairs or things like that like then all of a sudden here comes lots of expectations around what mothers should be doing um so it has been it's this like really interesting thing where um you know whenever whenever we want women to stop pushing for individual rights, we like, kind of as a society, will use motherhood as a like, you know, a little bit as like a, a cudgel, like, hey, don't forget, this is your most important job, you know, and so um, it's just interesting, because, you know, I I believe motherhood is important. And I, I, you know, I don't think that there's anything inherently, you know, more valuable to like, you know, working or getting a paycheck than taking care of kids for sure. But there's this weird way that um, it's been used as a, a way to sort of keep women in a particular role and keep them in the private sphere.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And where, do, where, I mean, in your research, where do you think that comes from? I mean, is it just that becomes a leverage and a negotiating tool that people are comfortable whipping out? Or is there something even deeper than that?
1: I think it's like a, a little bit of... Um, it's a little bit of, of multiple things really. So there's, you know, there, it is, yeah, a handy tool, but it's also, um, it's also just, it's a little bit like uh, driven by economics too. So it kind of depends on like if you, at the same time that, you know, as you kind of look at, at gender relations, you sort of see this trend. You can also look at it from an economic perspective and see, okay, so like, Whenever we need women in the workforce, all of a sudden, magically, all these cultural notions shift to allow that, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So,
0: like... You mean like after like World War, during World War II? Exactly. When, or yeah. during,
1: yeah, during World War Two, we needed women to go to work in, you know, on mass. And we, up until that point, had had a lot of ideas about how terrible childcare was and how awful daycare was and how terrible it was if mothers with young children worked. And I mean, within like one or two years, that had completely shifted um, to like it being your duty to go to work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's just interesting how much the, um, the role and the responsibilities associated with motherhood, um, are, are molded by whatever's happening in history at that time. You know, what's happening in the economy, what's happening with, um, gender norms and, and the evolution of ideas around that, um, What's happening with the birth rate? Uh, That's always a big one too. What's happening with the military? Do we need more soldiers? Like all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's these things where you see, oh, I see like in, you know, at the time when um, England, for example, was an imperial power, they were obsessed with birth rate because, and it was like, that was the time that eugenics started coming about, too, because the idea was like we have to have really high quality babies so that we have more soldiers, which is so kind of cynical when you think about it. Yeah, you it's, know, it's,
0: like, <laughs> it's too bad someone didn't take a 200 year view of that as they were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was at an yeah. event a few, like about two or three months ago now, and there were manufacturing leaders there. And one, you know, one of the conversations that came up in a roundtable was on, the The current need to, one, bring, you know, they have a need to bring people into manufacturing. It's not, it's not, it, they've got a marketing issue of trying to recruit younger talent into that field, but they also want to recruit more women. And, and one of them, one of the leaders made a point of saying, you know, there actually were a, a huge number of women actually running plants in World War II. And if you look back, it was when some of the plants were the most efficient. And so I'm like, how did... <laughs> How did we get so full circle on? Well, now you don't need to do that anymore. It's it's
1: really interesting. I know. I know. Well, I know after World War II, one of the main things, and this happened um, during the Depression, too, was that there was a concern about making sure that there were enough high paying jobs for men. So... um, you see this idea during those two p- times in history, and I feel like we're seeing it emerge a little bit again now, um, this idea of the family wage that like each family needs to be able to make a certain amount of money. And then that often being um, tied to male wages and the idea that like women's wages are secondary and actually, and I don't know, there's a bunch of like weird um, protective labor laws that came about too that, the you know, the idea behind them was – you know sort of supposed to be good for women but basically just set us up to um justify paying women less and you know um
0: right so So, yeah so here you are you (laughs) so you had been freelancing then you decide in the middle of the night I'm going to research and write a book on this which you did which a lot of people talk about writing Mm -hmm. books but then don't like you actually wrote one and it's published and it's out there now what's the name of it again if you don't mind sharing It's called "Forget Having It All:
1: How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It." But I wanted to call it "Rise of the Matriarchy."
0: (laughs) That's nice.
1: I know. I know. The sales team was like, "No one knows what matriarchy is." I was like, "I I, think they do." Picked
0: it up. (laughs) I know. I know. It's good though. Yeah. So, so you wrote the book, and then you how? Where in that time frame did you decide to start a company?
1: It was actually after I had sent in the manuscript for the book. So I had been working in audio and I had been um, making a, a couple of my own podcasts and then also helping different people out with theirs. And I, um, I looked around the podcast world and it was getting more and more professional, which was cool. But I was seeing the same kind of... Um, consolidation and kind of homogenous approach in, uh, happening in that realm that had happened in other aspects of media. So I looked, you know, I looked at like the top 30 podcast networks um, in terms of, you know, number of shows and downloads and like appearances and Apple charts and all that stuff. And it was, they were all owned by um, like the, a slight variation of the same guy. And... <laughs> You know, it's like they had pretty similar backgrounds. They, you know, had some similar um, work experience and education, all that, all that stuff. So I thought, oh, well, you know, first of all, it seems like at a minimum there's there's room for more women here. And then also I think that um, from a business model perspective, like if everyone's coming from public radio, the chances are pretty high that there are going to be some, some, um, avenues that they don't tend to think about in terms of revenue and, and monetization and um, and just some general approaches that are going to be different um, from someone who comes from, you know, like I have a, a background in media, but it's all over the map in terms of print and um you know, national versus local. I've done community reporting. I've done a fair amount of like marketing, consulting work, all that stuff. So I kind of felt like, you know, having a a more varied background would actually be beneficial from a, a business standpoint. And I had been in media so long and watched so many men make the same mistakes over and over again that I kind of, I kind of wanted to give it a shot and see if all the theories I'd had for so long would actually work.
0: That's a, and so how long have you been at it now? Because it, I mean, it. And I mean, obviously, I found it. Um, it's it's you've got, <laughs> yeah. and you've got a number of amazing shows already out there, like the Drilled Podcast, and yeah. you know, you obviously are still balancing your home life and family and all those amazing things. Do you mind taking us just a few minutes further back into? I mean, I I think you shared how. You made the decision to start a company, but if you were going back to say when you were in college, would you ever have predicted that this was where your path and where you were going? No, not at
1: all. I, um, I actually like I was so unclear about where I was going in college that I, um, I hit like my junior year of college and I still hadn't declared a major, and I just declared the only thing that didn't have prerequisites before you declared it. Which was comparative literature. Um, and- because you were after the big dollars after graduation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, Italian LID is where it's at. Um, and. yeah I just I really didn't know and I was interested in so many things and and actually I went to I went to um, UC Berkeley and it's uh, I really like they have a a requirement that you have to take at least one class from every school um, which is great but I feel like also kind of contributed to my confusion because I was like well I really like biology but I also really like English you know so um, yeah I just and I just had no clue of how any of it translated to actual jobs um, after college. And yeah, so, and I actually, I, I, um, I feel like that might be part of it too. I, my parents were very big on... Um, kind of understanding the like work equals dollars equation pretty early on. So we, my brother and I, never got allowances. We always had um, jobs, and we even like we convinced people to hire us at like very young ages. Oh, really? <laughs> like, like how young? I, and to do what? <laughs> yeah, like I was ten, and I got a job in a flower shop. Um, wow. And I was I would stripped I know oh, I, I stripped thorns off of roses and I blew up the helium balloons and she paid me cash under the, the table, table. Cause of course, course it's not table. legal to hire a 10 year old, So <laughs> That's amazing, but yeah, we, um, it, yeah, it was great. And we had a, we had a brisk business, uh, every year there was a, um, the PGA, the senior PGA golf tournament would come through our town every year. And my brother and i when we were like 12 i want to say we um the the golf stars would only sign golf balls for kids so we would get them all like to sign a whole bunch of golf balls and then sell them to all of the, the like, like old guys that we're
0: i love it that was incredibly entrepreneurial of you you were doing secondary market <laughs> <That was> nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So and then, you know, I worked I worked almost full time all through college too. I waited tables and I worked at a pharmacy and all that stuff. So I think part of it was that I knew that I had the skills to like that I had enough uh, work experience to to like survive. And so I kind of I think that helped me feel like I could sort of like um, Let's figure it out, be a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, like be just, yeah, be a that little bit really, like ambiguous. You know,
0: it, you know, I'm just, I just find that really interesting because I did a bunch of odd jobs all through college, and you know, nothing glamorous, like you know, part time work here or there, at stores yeah. and and whatever needed to be done. And I was just talking to someone recently who said that they're having a very hard time getting enough sort of college age kids to do things that we used to want to do, like work in a bar or work in a restaurant and they're, they're finding people are less willing to do those jobs because they don't see how it leads to a quote unquote real job. And I just thought that was interesting. That's so interesting.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. I always just felt like it was important to feel like I was capable of supporting myself no matter what. And Mm -hmm. like, um, I had friends. I mean, I had a, several friends who'd never, never worked in high school or college. And I I always kind of felt like they had a harder time transitioning into the workforce, actually. Like, that it was, um,
0: they had higher expectations
1: maybe that's, than I did. I don't know.
0: <laughs> maybe that's what it is. And that allows you to be more entrepreneurial, too. Because it the, the reality is, like, most of the time, especially those jobs, if someone's paying you, it's because... Like, no one wants to volunteer to do it, so, like, you just have to get comfortable doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, as you were talking and you mentioned how you had a lot of interest, biology and English, and obviously going to UC Berkeley, you're obviously a very smart, competent, capable person. But to me, listening to you, it makes all the sense of the world that you would end up doing science writing, you know, coming up. Right, yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I just sort of lucked into i the um I needed a job that would start like the day after graduation, and I applied for a job at a magazine, and it was like a magazine that could only exist in the dot com years of Silicon Valley. It was a, a print magazine that Better Homes and Gardens was going to put out um, about online shopping. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's so, like, thinking about that now, it's so ridiculous. Like, why? Why why would anyone want to read a print magazine about websites? But, um, you know, it was like the late 90s and um <laughs> oh my god no that was the time yeah. frame where i remember <laughs> i
0: got some entry-level job because they everyone was worried about y2k remember the y2k thing yes yes so it yes. was like such an opportunity if you wanted to get into a, a job that had a desk <laughs>
1: and, you know mm-hmm. there were
0: there were things there that's our yeah i remember that. yeah um so if you were yeah. you know yeah. would you do anything differently or if you went back in time and you know met your 19 or 20 year old self again what advice would you give that person
1: uh I think the only thing that I may have done differently is actually uh have kids younger um I think or and actually maybe just even put more thought into making a decision around having kids younger maybe um I feel like I just didn't even really think about it I never really um I never even really kind of thought about it in terms of making a decision one way or the other. I feel like I spent a lot of my 20s and even like early 30s just sort of like reacting to things as they came, you know. Um, And so, yeah, I feel like if, um, yeah, I feel like, and, and, I might not have even made different decisions, but I feel like I probably would have felt more in control of my life had I, like, put the time in to actually make a decision, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I feel like that's the, the main the main sort of thing.
0: And do you think that's because sort of the underlying thing that, in the same way that people lever- use motherhood as a, you know, one of these negotiating or polarizing tools and when women are making progress, mm-hmm. do you think that we... Are- and I'm just curious at all, like internalize, like the romanticism of all these things. So then I I remember in my twenties feeling like I wasn't going to plan some of that stuff because it was going to be magical and it was just going to happen. And yes, yes,
1: yes. That's a hundred percent. I think the problem, um, I, I, yeah, I feel like we, we think that, if things don't magically happen or work out easily without any effort, that there's something wrong with them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and that any kind of like practical uh, planning is uh, just so unromantic and whatever. I mean, I, so actually, like my, um, my husband is an efficiency consultant and like an operations consultant. He's like a lean, a lean manufacturing guy who worked in automotive in Japan. So he's like really, really like the Toyota way all the way. And, uh, (laughs) he, um, he for years was trying to say, Oh, we should apply this to our lives. And I was like, get your spreadsheet out of my face. Like, I can't imagine being the sort of boring person who would, you know, take a data focused approach to my life. That's right. really how I felt. I was, <laughs> I, hear you. I was just like, I'm a creative, you know. But um in fact, it's quite useful to actually like gather data about your life. So he um eventually kind of wore me down and we did this crazy year-long data project where we had a massive whiteboard in our bedroom. And we tracked, like, how we were spending time and money and then correlated that to, like, overall life size, uh, life satisfaction. And yes, and we realized that, like, well, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of, like, reinforcing stuff you already know but don't necessarily, like, know how to voice, you know. And I do think it it also does – It's a handy tool for having conversations that could otherwise have an emotional charge to them, like, you know, division of household labor. It's a lot easier to be like, oh, wow, you spent two times as many hours on housework as I did. I'll do the laundry. That like that was how my husband took over doing laundry um, was just that like he could see it um and it wasn't me having to nag him or me complaining about how much I was doing it was just like very obvious in the numbers um
0: well that's what was interesting super too, super
1: helpful one of the things yeah. we
0: ran into at one point or, or especially earlier in our relationship was that my husband would be he would be very helpful but he would also say well this isn't important like we can live like slobs mm. like that's totally fine and so it was almost like yeah my if I was putting in the extra hours that like I didn't need to be doing that so it certainly didn't mean mean that he needed to do it like why couldn't we just live the way his frat house used to look you know (laughs) So. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. And that's why actually I felt like the um the life satisfaction scale was really important. So we would um, – every day we would uh, assign a number to like how we were feeling about life in general and an explanation uh, – like a reason. So like in your case, if like the reason you were feeling kind of like crappy of a day was that the house was totally chaotic and that happened like multiple times a month or something, then it's like, okay, well actually – this is critical to life satisfaction. So we have to tackle it. You know? Um, and yeah, I mean, it really, it totally shifted. Like, um, my husband was commuting a bunch in the car and we figured out a way for him to like take the train and ride his bike so that he at least had like, you know, exercise and some amount of productive time and that, um, it shifted my approach to what I was working on. Um, And then ultimately, we realized that we had to leave the Bay Area because it was like, you know, we're never going to be able to work fewer hours if we live in this place that is like getting more expensive every year. Um, So yeah, we actually like like ended up making. Yeah, we ended up, you know, we ended up uh, we sold our house and he quit his job and we moved to Tahoe, which everyone we knew thought was insane,
0: but it was extremely database <laughs> Yeah. And because your cost of living went down, yeah. your quality of life went up, by. about Oh, like- yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We worked less and our, we cut our cost of living by 60%. So uh, yeah, it like totally was the right move. But on the outside, it's it looked really like irresponsible and like you know like i we had a lot of friends that were like oh man i'm jealous i feel like you know i could have done that in my 20s but not now and i'm like but actually like it's it's like the most pragmatic decision i've ever made
0: <laughs> yeah i mean if you can that's that is like the um you know gaming the system in a lot of ways because if you can if you can figure out how to get the cost of living down then, because you're yeah. not live, you're not you're living to live at that point. You're not working to live or living to work, whatever. That yeah,
1: is. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that that move totally opened up the hours that um that I needed to go like learn how audio reporting worked, which then led to you know getting into podcasting, which then led to starting a company. So I definitely think that you know. I don't know, to the extent that you can open up hours in your life for um, non-obligatory things, I think it's really, it's helpful. Um, And I kind of feel like, you know, uh, I don't know, my, my dad's like, piece of advice that he gives all the time is that, you know, there are enough things that happen in your life or like circumstances that you're born into that you can't do anything about. So when you have a situation where you actually have choice, you should take it, you know? Um, and I, I think it's good advice. I like it. (laughs) I like
0: it too. So, um, you know, where do you, you know, you've obviously started a company it's in, in, in the last year, do you in that data-driven view of the world now do you have a plan for where you want it to be a few years from now or are you just sort of taking it day by day and and making it the best it can be I'm just curious
1: Yeah I I mean I I um I mean I guess like in if if I were to say like my 5-year plan it's really kind of to um to be able to not just uh, be producing shows, but also be training new podcasters. So, like, that, a big part of why I got into this was that um, I I think it's cool that there's this medium that has always kind of been about um, independent voices and giving access to a communications tool that a lot of people don't have otherwise you know like tv ac- it's really hard to get on tv it's really hard to get published in print you know like it's um you know you can still make a podcast, um, with an idea and, you know, some equipment and maybe a little bit of help. And, um, and I think that's cool. And so, yeah, I kind of, I really want to be able to, um, to offer more hands-on training for people. And then also just, um, a little bit more like a, of a, um, like a, a cross media studio sort of thing. So I, I, I think a lot of the stories that we tell in audio um, can easily be translated into lots of other media. But what happens a lot is that people will just sort of uh, do a transcription instead of actually like rethinking how that story looks in, you know, print or in TV or whatever. So um, so kind of getting to the point where we have the ability to um, to make stories in lots of different ways, too, I think would be would be fun
0: that's awesome and certainly your background lends itself to that with you know you can just see yeah it. so you know one of the yeah. things that one of the other reasons I'm doing this um, whole series is really to have an opportunity for women who are either earlier in their career or just or even in the middle of it with kids and trying to just hear other experiences and I think mm-hmm. we all have, you know, my story about being in my closet trying to negotiate a term mm-hmm. sheet. Do you have any stories yeah. that, that you can think of that, that have story. been particularly interesting or, or bizarre with kids and uh, trying to work, balance work and family? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I um I feel like I have definitely multiple times had the experience of um having to actually like hide from a crying child <laughs> while... <laughs> which just sounds horrible but it's like if I know that they're not injured or you know they're like they're really just crying because they want the channel changed on the tv or something you know like hiding like in my car in the garage like I'm still here and you know it's like I can sort of hear them uh, uh I, can I can sort of hear them. them through the
0: door in your car in your garage from like the yes. Ridiculous demands of a young
1: child,
0: yeah, who's yeah. like,
1: like oh, I want juice, yeah, yeah I
0: totally. Know. Um, yes, have I they have. Ever been like,
1: to you? no, no they, they haven't, they, they don't know. It's <laughs> which is actually, actually the so one time I felt really bad, bad, about bad about it was, was I like, went back inside, and they, they, they um, have, my, my youngest son thought that like I had lost, I had like left and that they were alone, and I was like, oh god, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't feel good about that, but I, it was like, you know, I couldn't reschedule the call. Um, then they were both home. We have a lot of snow days here. So it's like, uh, there's a lot of unexpected, um, I don't know. There's a lot of days where I'm working and like unexpectedly also have two little kids running around. Um, so so, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I think I had to like, um, I love it. And I think, I think everybody relates because it's like, you, the The fact that you brought up, like, of course your kids are safe. Of course they're fine. It's there's actually nothing yeah. really wrong. It's not like someone is out in the middle of the street or something. It's just like yeah. having that wail while you're trying to just get through one conversation. So that's a new hiding place. I think yeah, that we could use as a tool to recommend to people the car, <laughs> the garage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, anything else yes, you want to add as you're thinking about this, um and your story? I and don't you think are. so.
1: No, I don't think so. Oh well I I guess like I feel like um you know, my, the title of my book is forget having it all. And people uh, will often point out to me that in fact, I am doing many things at once. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think it's, I don't know. I feel like it's important for people. And actually I think that, um, you do a great job of talking about this and it comes out in so many of the interviews too, that impressing upon people that like there are phases and that that's okay, that there are, periods of time where you might not be super productive and that's okay. And there are periods of time where you, you know, can really only choose like two main things that you're doing, you know? Um, and that, that doesn't mean that it's going to be like that forever, that things change all the time. And that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I know for me, like the, I, I had like a total panic that, you know, I was going to, completely lose my career and have to start over. And, um, it's just, it's just not the case. Um, so yeah, people, I feel like if people can kind of like give themselves a little bit of a break on doing all the things all the time, um, you know, that would be good.
0: I think that's awesome advice. Yeah. And I I definitely have noticed in my own career path as I've been interviewing people and hired different people over the years, there's a different, and I don't know how much of it is internalized. Um, but I've seen plenty of resumes from guys who have stepped out for a couple months or a year because they, you know, took a sabbatical or and, and there's kind of a little unconscious bias of oh they must have been incredibly successful that they were able to step mm. out and when women do there's a little of unconscious bias of oh you were taking care of the kids and I feel like the more yeah. women can hear like S- stepping out does not have to mean that you come in at a lower level it might mean that you you know keep your network up or a number of different things but yeah it doesn't mean that yeah that you're back to the beginning <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. exactly exactly all right well awesome um thank you so much for taking the time to do this today and i'm sure you're going to make this amazing yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, I'm, I'm excited yeah, yeah this great. is great
1: and my kids are knocking on the door of the room i'm hiding from them in nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts on our website at the43percent.com or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.